We're continuing our series on Jesus through three different Gospels, and we're in Luke chapter 9 because we want to understand who the church is from the cornerstone out by understanding who our Savior is. And so we're looking at Luke chapter 9 to these powerful words that Jesus shares with his disciples. I'm going to start reading in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others the one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, show us the kingdom. You promise to do that. You promise to show us what it's about to be members of your kingdom with you as a king. And so I pray that you would give us hearts that will listen to you this morning to hear just that. Show us, Lord Jesus, in your name we ask. Amen. You know, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all see this exchange between Jesus and his disciples as a major turning point in their gospel. As they tell the story of Jesus, when we get to this point and Peter's confession, something dramatic happens. Because up until now, Jesus has been doing what we said he was doing. He said he was going to preach the gospel to every man, woman, and child, every village, every city, every town in North Israel, in Galilee. And so he's been doing that, going from place to place to place. After Peter confesses him as the Christ, Jesus begins to say most clearly for the first time, I am going to suffer and die. And not only does he say that, but but verse 50 of this chapter Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. Instead of staying in the north in Galilee, he, sa- he begins his journey to the south to Jerusalem, which we know is not just a geographical change for Jesus. This is a missional change for Jesus because Jerusalem is the place where Jesus will die. So what's the big deal about Peter's confession? What are we learning here when Peter confesses this? Verses 18 and 19, Jesus Jesus just kind of takes a poll from the crowds, and he says, tell me, guys, what what are the crowds saying up till this point? They've seen me do miracles. They've heard me teach. Who do they say that I am? And and they get some interesting response from the crowds. This is what the disciples say. They say it's either Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets from old. What the crowds know is Jesus is not an ordinary teacher of their day. Everybody they're guessing that Jesus is, is a dead person come back to life. That's, that's significant. They think Jesus is someone significant. But then Jesus turns the question to the disciples and says, Okay, men, who do you think that I am? You who are most 
close to me. Who do you think that I am? And Peter is the first one to speak, and he ventures the Christ. You're the Christ of God. Now, what Peter says there is absolutely profound, but he is speaking way beyond his years. He is saying something that even he doesn't fully understand what he's saying. Jesus is indeed the Christ, which is the Greek word for the Messiah, the one who has been promised from the Old Testament, will come and free his people and bring a kingdom. The Jewish people of Peter's day were expecting this. They were hoping for this. They were praying for this. They were expecting the Messiah to come and to bring the kingdom, to fight for them, to bring an army, to overthrow the rulers that are oppressing them. They were expecting this kind of Messiah. But up until this point, besides the Old Testament, there was not a single Jewish writer about the Messiah who said a word about his suffering. Nobody expected a Messiah to come and suffer. Why would he? He's a king bringing a kingdom against oppressors. He's a conqueror. What room is there for a conqueror to suffer? So the disciples here when they're talking to Jesus, they get the glory part. They know he's a king with a kingdom. They get the glory, but they don't have any kind of framework that the road to glory for Jesus is suffering. And so confusion abounds as we walk through the rest of this gospel. Just a few verses later, they are passing on their way to Jerusalem through a Samaritan village, and the village rejects Jesus, and the disciples say to Jesus, do you want us now to call fire down from heaven on this village? What are they talking about? What so far Jesus' ministry has led them to believe that Jesus all of a sudden wants to get Sodom and Gomorrah up on this village here in Samaria? I mean, what has he done so far? The disciples are thinking, we have a king in our midst, and he's bringing a kingdom, and we want to see that happen now. Even in Acts chapter 1, as, as Luke continues to tell the story, even after Jesus has died and risen from the dead, what do the disciples ask? Jesus, are you now going to bring the kingdom? Is this when we get to see what we've been waiting for? Confusion abounds. It's not until Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit indwells believers that Peter, for the first time, is able to open his Bible and show from the Old Testament that the Messiah must suffer, that the road to glory is suffering for the Messiah. That's why Jesus tells them in our passage to be quiet about him being the Christ in verse 21. He's saying, basically, you might know I'm the Christ, but you have no idea who the Christ is. You've identified me with him, but the last thing I want for you to do is run around Israel telling people I'm the Christ and filling that with your own ideas of who the Christ is. He tells them in verse 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus is taking that title that they've known and longed for, and he's beginning to fill it with meaning, with biblical meaning, with the meaning that he comes and does. Notice Jesus doesn't say that the Son of Man comes to be executed. It's not enough for him to be killed on the spot. He comes to absorb suffering and shame and then be killed. The Messiah must suffer the road to glory is suffering. 
Well, you and I, if we're in Christ, we have something that the disciples didn't have at this point. We do have the Holy Spirit in us, and we're able to open our Bibles like a passage like Isaiah 53 and understand this about Jesus, understand that this was always God's plan. We've already heard a little bit from Isaiah 53, but listen to the way that this chapter describes Jesus' ministry. Listen to these phrases. No majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. That's the suffering of Jesus. In other words, all the things that you and I spend so much time and energy and money and angst chasing after our position, our attractiveness, our honor, our popularity, our happiness, our esteem... The Messiah comes to lay those things aside, to put them aside and to suffer. And then Isaiah 53 hits a feverish pitch with these words, grief, sorrow, stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, crushed, chastised, stripes, oppressed, slaughter, cut off. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to crush the Messiah. In bearing the full weight of this suffering and shame, in taking this road of suffering, that is the Messiah's glory. As verse 11 says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Friends, this is 700 years before Jesus comes and the prophet Isaiah is saying the road to glorious suffering when the Messiah absorbs the sin and the shame and the suffering of his people, that is his glory because he wins for himself a kingdom of saints, a kingdom of brothers and sisters in Christ who are counted righteous because Jesus is righteous. Behold, this is your Messiah. He is telling you, plain as day, halfway into this gospel, what will happen to him. So that when you and I next month approach Easter and we see that horrific crucifixion scene, we know that this has been God's plan from the beginning and our Messiah is laying down his life so that he will take it up again. The road to glory is suffering. If you and I don't grasp what the Messiah is doing here, that the road to glory is suffering from him, you and I will never understand the next words out of his mouth or what it means for us to be a Christian and to follow Jesus. If the disciples had been thinking of the Messiah as this triumphant conqueror, you can imagine what they were thinking it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to follow Jesus. What does it look like to follow the guy who wins, to follow the conqueror? A few chapters later, they're going to argue with each other. Who of us is the greatest in the kingdom? Who gets to sit closest to Jesus? Who's on his right? Who's on his left? What's this going to be like to serve a conquering king? But missing what the Christ comes to do has them missing what Christians are to become. And so just like Jesus has to refill the title of Christ for them, so now he has to refill the meaning of what a Christian is for them. And he does that in verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
That's what it means to be a Christian. There's no bait and switch with Jesus. What he wins us with is what he wins us to. Jesus goes to the cross, and then he invites all who would follow him to share in that cross with him. Now, wait a minute. I hope some of you are asking. I thought Jesus, because he suffered for our sin, we don't have to. I thought the whole point of Jesus going to the cross was to spare us from the cross, right? That's a tremendous question to ask, and you are absolutely right. There is not a moment for the Christian, there is not a tear, there is not a drop of blood that we will shed for the penalty of sin. Do you understand that? We will suffer for consequences of sin. We will make bad decisions and we will break friends' trusts. We will hurt our bodies because of our sin. But you and I, if we are in Christ, we will not suffer for one moment for the penalty of sin. Because Jesus has taken that on himself, we will never find ourselves at the business end of Isaiah 53 that we will be crushed by the will of God. That's not for us. That's the good and glorious news of the gospel. Jesus paid it all, we just sang. All week, Satan has been singing to you. Jesus has put a down payment on it. And now you come this morning because you need to hear a brother and a sister in Christ standing on either side of you to say Jesus has paid it all. That's the gospel. The cross we carry is not the penalty for sin, but it is the path to glory. Jesus says. So here's a follow-up question. So are we saying that Jesus saves us by grace, but then keeps us by works? Do we kind of get in the front door of the kingdom by faith, but then we earn our keep in the kingdom by doing good things, by proving that we're obedient followers of Jesus? Again, that's a great question. You guys are asking awesome questions this morning. We're holy saved by grace. That is the gospel. We enter the kingdom by faith. We live and dwell in the kingdom by faith. We walk in the spirit by faith. We are justified by faith and we are sanctified by faith. It is holy and completely the grace of God that saves us and keeps us and glorifies us in the end. That is the gospel. The Bible vehemently argues against adding anything to that truth of the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. Not a result of works so that anyone should boast. It is a gift from God. We can't add anything to that. But here's the incredibly important nuance for the Christian. As a believer, obedience in our lives is a grace. Obedience and works are are a grace of God for us. Ephesians continues in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Obedience is a grace. Works, they don't, they don't earn us this grace. They are this grace in our life. Jesus rhetorically asks his disciples and us, and I want you to hear in this question the infinite love of God for you. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What's the alternative for God's grace in our life working out this obedience, working out good, great, good works in our life? What's the alternative to him bearing fruit in us? 
It's losing and forfeiting ourselves. We studied this when we looked at the the parable of the sower and the soils. What does it look like if Jesus is not working out these good works in us? Well, it looks like being a plant that's planted in shallow, rocky soil. That when suffering comes, we have no roots in the promise and the goodness of God. And we believe the lives of Satan so much so that those lives become our truth. And Jesus' truth becomes lies. And we wake up one day drifting from the sun. What does it look like when Jesus is not working disobedience in us? It looks like that, that vine that grew up in the thorny soil, where we are so attracted to the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, when those things that we play with at first but then become ultimate to us, and they become idols to us, and one day we will wake up fruitless stems being choked to death by these thorns. Where's the grace in that? Where's the love of Jesus in that if he is not vehemently and actively working out these good things in us? There's no grace there. This obedience that Jesus calls us to, this self-denial, frees us from ourselves. It makes us our truest selves. We are allowed to be who God created us to be when we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. I don't know if you guys have met my son Judah. He's sitting right here in the front row. He's waving to you. He's got a shaved head. He's like a little mini-me. We're at a sweet season in our life where Judah actually wants me to use him in sermon illustrations. I know that's not going to last forever, but when I get done preaching, Judah usually says, Dad, you didn't say anything about me. And I'm like, well, I can't do that every week. You know, it's really about Jesus and not about you. But he'll say, but you said something about Ami three weeks ago. I had a buddy in college whose dad was a pastor, and he would come to him every week and say, Son, I have an incredibly embarrassing story about you to tell that I need to tell on Sunday. Can I tell it? (laughs) And he would say, Of course not, Dad. I don't want anybody to know that. And he'd say, Son, Jesus needs this illustration. (laughs) And he would tell it anyway. So I'm going to take advantage of that for now. Um, But we intuitively get this in our homes, right? Judah is beginning to intuitively get that in our homes, Julie and I, however well, however bad we're doing this, are trying to, by setting house rules, create a space where we can enjoy each other and enjoy God most fully. And a lot of those rules entail some kind of self-denial, right? So when we say to Judah, we can't have donuts tonight for dinner. We need to eat our vegetables, When we say, you know, it's not always best to be first. Sometimes we have to let your sister go first. When we say we can't just keep our toys to ourselves, we've got to share them with our friends. That hurts. That costs us something. But we know intuitively that kind of obedience creates a space where we will ultimately be happy. Not because we got everything we want, but because this is becoming to be a place where we can enjoy God and enjoy other people most fully. Now, before I come up here, I do a Juice and Jesus time with our kids 6 to 12. And we talk about this passage before we all come in here. And it was amazing as I was trying to explain carefully, your parents set rules because they want you to be happy. That's a tough thing to, in my mind, convince a six-year-old of. And these kids, right off the bat, began giving me specific illustrations from, from this week of how obedience made them most happy. I mean, someone was saying, when my brother wants to borrow the light purple crown to draw a smiley face on their picture, and I let him, that makes him happy, and that makes me happy. When my brother wants to play the Star Wars game on the iPad, and I want to play the Star Wars game on the iPad, and I share it with him, and he's happy, then I'm happy. They intuitively get 
what you and I will wrestle our entire Christian lives to understand, that this invitation from Jesus to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him is a grace. Because Jesus has huge aims for you as a believer. He wants to prune you like a plant. He wants to chisel you like a stone that's being built together in a temple. He wants to have you beat your body like an athlete out to win a race. He wants you to sell everything you have and buy the pearl of great price. He wants you to bear on your body the stigmata, the marks of being a slave of Christ. These are the biblical metaphors Jesus gives us for what it means to be a Christian. This muted, watery, spineless country club stepsister of Christianity in America today that indulges ourselves, that carries the cross when it's convenient, that is constantly ashamed of Jesus at the water cooler, that devises ways we can gain the whole world and keep our soul at the same time, has nothing to do with the kingdom that Jesus brings. That's not the way he brings the kingdom, and that's not the way you and I live in the kingdom. The road to glory is suffering. Jesus calls for decisive, urgent action to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Now, I tell you, friend, every single Christian in this room is harboring something, is holding something or a lot of things in our life that Jesus is saying, surrender, and we are saying no. We are fighting for these things, and Jesus is saying, give them up. We're holding these things, and Jesus is saying, put them down. And that is an act of decisive, ongoing self-denial to kill those things that we love so much and hold so dear and have stroked in the darkness for so long, we'll feel like waking up in the morning and hefting a cross on our shoulder and walking the road of suffering with Jesus. And that is what he calls us to. It hurts. It costs us something to follow him. Now, Jesus is speaking so sternly to us here because he is purging us of imagining a Christ without a cross and a Christian without cost. He wants to get those things out of our minds, out of our hearts, out of American Christianity as fast as he can. Because the road of suffering is chock full of glory. It's at the beginning, it's at the middle, it's at the end. Here, between the lines, the glory that is in store for the one who will deny themselves and take up the cross and follow Jesus. Verse 23, deny yourself to follow Jesus. It is your glory to have less of you and more of Jesus. Do you believe that? For you to decrease and for Jesus to increase, for you to count as everything as lost for the sake of knowing Jesus, that is your glory. Verse 24, to lose your life to save it. It is your glory to hold this world and the things of this world and its cares and riches and pleasures and suffering so lightly that you have both hands free to grasp the kingdom come, the new heavens and the new earth, that day when the heavens will part and Jerusalem will descend, there will be no sun because of God's radiant glory. That is your glory. 
lose this world. Even if you could gain it, it's not worth it. Grab on to what Jesus has for you. And in verse 26, we invite shame to gain honor. If we are ashamed of Jesus and we hide our faith, he's ashamed of us. But it is our glory when we are shamed in this life for Jesus and for our faith, because when he comes in glory, verse 26, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels, he will lift the head of every believer. That's the glory you want. You don't want the peace that you get from those five minutes you don't bring up Jesus with your neighbor and you get out of that conversation without any awkwardness. That's five minutes of pleasure. Jesus wants to bring you the glory that comes from being shamed by him before others. That is your glory. That's what you long for. To paraphrase the missionary Jim Elliott, stop grasping at the things you can't keep and start enjoying the things you can't lose. That, friends, is our glory. Let's pray together. Father, I'm overwhelmed by this text because there are things that are so, feel so dear and sweet in my life that have become and threatened to become ultimate things in my life that I want to hold on to. And today and forevermore, you tell me to die to those very things that I might receive the one thing you have called me to to gain Christ, to enjoy Christ, to be found in Christ. Lord, give us the strength for this road of suffering, that all of us might deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.